Hello and welcome to Coloured Souls. My name is Jamie Gladstone and here we will discuss current affairs in race policy, developments in education, African, Caribbean and South American history, as well as important texts in post-colonial literature. Whilst extreme forms of racial segregation may not have been enforced on Britain's shores, such as the apartheid in South Africa, other insidious forms have been integrated into the culture. One such form of segregation operates from very early in the life of many 21st century black Britons, as early as the age of six, or year two in primary school. For many children, this takes the form of sets, streaming, or attainment grouping named by some schools. What they do is they group children based on their abilities to complete tasks in specific lessons. So in this episode, we'll be exploring educational segregation as a means to subjugate. Now my personal memories of being grouped from my secondary school experience. What I've observed from working in the education sector is the continuation of children of the global majority being overrepresented in the, in scare quotes, lower ability group. One senior leader I worked with recounted a story in which a child in year three delivered a pile of books. The child identified one pile as being the lower group and the other, chest puffed with pride, as theirs the higher group. And what kind of message does this send to children that find themselves grouped based on lower abilities? Well, two studies have shown that children being placed into the lower groups may experience negative effects on their behavior, their ability to adjust and suffer emotional distress. One practitioner I worked with felt that, and I quote, it's really conflicting and I have a real problem with it. Because practically, as a teacher, when you have to hit benchmarks, it makes sense. But as a human, wanting to teach well-being and encourage and foster a love of learning and not fear of mistakes, it goes against everything that I believe. You see, that internal conflict that this practitioner spoke about really stood out during the time when we were, when we were speaking, when we were having the interview for my dissertation. In particular, fostering a love of learning and not fearing mistakes. Instead of promoting resilience and agency, the children in the lower ability groups may find themselves learning much less than they are capable of, which could lead them to manifest in frustration as undesirable behaviours in class. Differentiation is spoken about consistently at every level of education. As a trainee teacher, this was a key part of meeting the requirements of the teacher standards. How effectively could we differentiate for all the children in the class? Learning about the most effective pedagogical methods, analysing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Vygotsky's model of scaffolding and Piaget's theory of cognitive development, to name only a few, can generate a mixture of feeling confident and overwhelmed with regard to effective pedagogy. However, with the children afforded a greater degree of agency over how the information is disseminated, a deeper understanding may be achieved. Within each of the ability groups, there are differing levels of needs. So are they effectively still mixed ability groups? Ultimately, no. Segregation within the groups may still exist, such as one Key Stage 1 classroom in which the class was set out with various tables at which the children were essentially ranked as higher or lower ability. The table with the lowest ability was the one that the teacher would sit at. 
And yet children have the amazing ability to be teachers in their own right. When asked if this could be a positive for the British classroom, one practitioner I used to work with replied, yeah, because if you watch children, when you let children mix abilities come together, they can all learn from each other. See, because children know how children learn, and they have the language that students themselves naturally use. And because students learn by taking the roles of teachers, they can be very effective teachers in their own right. For more on this, there's an amazing study that was done by Paul Black and Dylan William in 2004. Although many practitioners utilize ability grouping with good intentions, the influences of race and class still hang heavy over the children of the globe majority. Children are aware of segregation, and are also aware of what it means to be black. The hangover of coloniality in which particular ethnic groups were assigned specific derogatory stereotypes continue to manifest in the expectations placed on global majority children, with one practitioner observing that they, or children, know why they're being separated. They know which group they're in, and then they feel like a failure from a very young age. Another practitioner recounted a, recounted a specific child from their in-class experience. Because of his African-Caribbean heritage, he's going to go down this road, because he's doing these types of behaviours and, and this is going to be the outcome. And I kind of felt like, okay, I've got to do something for him. I need to protect him from that. I'm not going to allow people to even begin to think of race, even on a subconscious level. Because obviously, as white British, you're never going to be an adult in a position like that, that is being racially oppressed. And to even covertly do that to a six or seven year old, you're not going to do that. So I'm going to protect you. Now this particular child, he had certain specific behavioural needs. And without knowing the case completely, I can't say what those particular needs were or what they were brought about by. However, from my own personal experience working within schools, I have seen that children being persistently punished for behavioural mistakes, as they are sometimes called by behavioural psychologists, can perpetuate these behaviours in ways that they manifest continually. And being segregated or sent to isolation or time out will only exacerbate the situation. Now this particular child's future had been mapped out before he had even had the chance to establish his educational path. And this falls into the category of having low expectations of a child's abilities based upon what is presented to them as fact. For example, figures on attainment based on ethnic group. As Darren Wallace and Remy Joseph Salisbury said in 2001 in their paper, the practice of making the Caribbean child educationally subnormal in the English school system is still very much influenced by low attainment expectations. So if the division of children in primary can be negated by using mixed ability classes, what is the purpose of separating them? The institutionalized segregation of children, particularly Caribbean children, has been prominent for many decades in Britain. Just see Bernard Cord's 1971 book, How... Just see Bernard Cord's 1971 book, How the West Indian Child Has Made Educationally Subnormal in the British School System for More Evidence. With Caribbean children being placed in schools which were formerly called schools for the mentally subnormal or educationally subnormal ESN schools, in numbers which were completely and wrongly disproportionate 
a message was being sent to the value of the Caribbean voice in Britain. Those children rarely advanced out of those schools and so carried the moniker of subnormality into adulthood. In the modern context, these schools are no longer in existence, and rightly, children that do not require a place in schools for children with severe educational care needs are not placed there simply based on the colour of their skin. Instead, with integration into the mainstream education system, Caribbean children are disproportionately filling spaces in lower ability groups, inclusion rooms, alternate provision settings such as pupil referral units or PRUs and exclusion charts. Pereira in her 2020 paper argues that the intersection of race and gender demonstrates that it is young boys of black Caribbean heritage that are significantly overrepresented in pupil referral units and alternative provision. Whilst Afro-Caribbean children pupils make up 1% of the total pupil population in England, they make up 3% of those in pupil referral units, and that's according to the, the Gov UK figures. These PRU settings and lower ability groups, fueled by low expectations, have replaced the ESN settings to become, dubbed by Bernard Cord in 2005, dumping grounds for Caribbean children. In 2011, the head of the Jamaican Teachers Association, Adolf Cameron, said the following. Jamaican boys are more interested in hustling, which is a quick way of making a living, rather than making the commitment to study. This is supposed to be a street thing, which is a male thing. Now Cameron was speaking about the attitudes towards learning that he had observed in Jamaica, and the performance of boys compared to the performance of girls. He also said that education takes second place to notions of entrepreneurship. This is an interesting statement when viewed in the context of Britain's primary school system and how Caribbean children live through stereotypes. In order to appeal to children as an educator, my first step when introducing any new topic is to find out what interests the children in the class. So if entrepreneurship is something that is being viewed as a negative to denigrate the Caribbean community, could the same idea be used to encourage Caribbean children to learn, using that theme in, for example, maths, an English writing task, or an art project? Equally, the forum for sharing ideas surrounding entrepreneurship are powerful enough to inspire many children to aspire for something way beyond the prescribed futures that many of them are sold. According to the Social Metrics Commission in 2020, statistically in the United Kingdom, the Caribbean community is one of the poorest. And it's through the perpetuation of an ideology of an educationally disengaged community which reproduces and legitimizes class inequality and ensures that the poverty pipeline continues to be filled by low-paid workers. The segregation of Caribbean children into lower ability groups is a pedagogical practice which oppresses the Caribbean community and is one which, although not explicitly taught, has been internalized by many practitioners. Statistics which say that this ethnic group succeeds in this context or lags behind in another only serves to inform a premeditated outcome for those children. True integration of Caribbean children into the classroom would be to look at the relationship between Britain and the Caribbean. With the current dynamic, 
the established system of oppressor and oppressed that flourished during the empirical domination and subjugation of the Caribbean continues to be reproduced. The deportations that arose during and after the Windrush scandal and the conspicuous absence of Caribbean teachers in the classroom speaks volumes of how little the contribution of the Caribbean community have been valued in Britain. Addressing this imbalance in the relationship and embracing the historical connections of the British Empire to the Caribbean would open up dialogue instead of feeding the conveyor belt of subalternality. Of course, this is not something which affects every single Caribbean child to the same degree, and to generalise their outcomes risks fueling bias. However, with 64% of Caribbean children not achieving 9 to 5 at GCSE, which is A star to C in old money, we need to look into the journey, not just the destination. As many Caribbean children are finding themselves classified as low ability or wrongly identified with special educational needs, their outcomes are often predicated on outdated stereotypes of a disinterest in education, of laziness and of idleness. And it has been within this context of structural and cultural racism in British state education that Afro-Caribbean parents pupils, youth workers and community organisers have protested the institutional mechanisms by which too many Afro-Caribbean children experience British schools as sites of serial social suffering. Fifty years after the publication of Bernard Cord's How the West Indian Child Has Made Educationally Subnormal in the British School System, Afro-Caribbean pupils in Britain are still regularly framed in discursive terms such as an underachieving group. And although sociological and educational research has built upon Cord's work to further document the causes and consequences of Afro-Caribbean underachievement in the British school system, there's been insufficient improvement in the education experiences and outcomes of Afro-Caribbean young people at the secondary and tertiary levels. Black Caribbean pupils are awarded comparatively low grades on GCSE and A-level assessments, frequently overrepresented in special educational programs, disproportionately allocated to lower ranked and less academically rigorous classes in schools, and underrepresented at top universities. So as the 2021 publication of the report from the British Government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities has shown, such indicators are usually proffered without due attention to the historical, political and institutional policy arrangements that influence these results. And that was called central argument in 1971. It is a sad reflection of just how little progress has been made in real terms over the past 50 years. Despite rhetorical commitments to multiculturalism, diversity and race equality in state education over the decades, the educational disadvantages experienced by Afro-Caribbean young people persist because the institutional mechanisms of structural and cultural inequalities in the 1970s are firmly rooted into the British educational system. And despite some surface level changes, the deep rooted nature on structural racism means that too much remains the same for Afro-Caribbean students. Now, it's all too easy to interpret the racialized awarding disparities as a simple reflection on the persistence of educational disadvantage or of the cultural deficit of Afro-Caribbean students. Research with a more critical orientation in the tradition of cause research paints a more worrying picture. Benchmark changes 
not only attempt to blur the lines of enduring racial and ethnic inequalities in education, but they produce a significant decrease in the number of young people reaching those targets. These changes actively disadvantage some ethnic minority groups, including Afro-Caribbean students. And benchmark changes also often come at times when attainment gaps are actually narrowing. Now, according to David Gilborn, this, as he calls it, goalpost moving, therefore acts to protect the racial status quo and reset the educational disadvantage of Afro-Caribbean students, amongst others, particularly in periods when they appear to be catching up and closing the attainment gap. This is, as Gilborn puts it, racism as policy. Policy serving to manage race inequality at sustainable levels while maintaining and even enhancing white dominance of the system. When Bernard Cord decried the educational disadvantage of Afro-Caribbean pupils in British schools, he did more than call attention to the biases and beliefs of educational policymakers and practitioners. It's often forgotten that he levelled a critique of between-school ability groupings' disproportionate impact on Afro-Caribbean pupils in schools. Ability grouping reinforced hierarchies of value among students by separating out the clever and the stupid, the educable and the ineducable. When Cord wrote his seminal text in 1971, Afro-Caribbean pupils were disproportionately the ones for whom between school ability grouping provided or proved a punitive and near-permanent measure. Drawing on data from the Inner London Educational Authority in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Cord wrote, The situation is particularly bad for West Indians because three-quarters of all the immigrant children in these educationally subnormal schools are West Indian, whereas West Indians are only half of the immigrant population in ordinary schools. The 1970 figures are even more alarming, for even though immigrants comprise nearly 17% of the normal school population, nearly 34% of the ESN school population is immigrant, and four out of every five immigrant children in these ESN schools are Caribbean. Offering complementary and more detailed anti-racist perspectives on the purpose of educationally subnormal schools, Tomlinson and Troyner, among others, highlighted how ESN schools prepared Afro-Caribbean youth and other immigrant minorities for specific manual and service functions in the British labour markets. And it's quite interesting how Darren Wallace and Remy Joseph Salisbury said virtually the same thing in 2001. These two studies, Tomlinson and Troyner, were done in 1978 and 1984 respectively. Furthermore, subsequent educational research and community reports described ESN schools as educational dustbins in a segregated school system, the very existence of which was challenged so that equitable and inclusive education could more meaningfully take root in British school system. It's interesting again how Bernard Court said virtually the same thing in 2005 about the pupil referral units and alternative provisions. Spurred by the protest efforts of the Black Parents Movement and the organising power of the Black Supplementary Schools Movement throughout the 1970s, educational policymakers and government officials came to question ESN schools as suitable arrangements for Afro-Caribbean and minority ethnic pupils in British schools. Both the Swan Report in 1985 and its predecessor, the Rampton Report of 1981, 
challenged the disproportionate designation of Afro-Caribbean pupils to ESN schools and noted the discriminatory dynamics that persisted in British schools and society. However, these reports devoted scant attention to the within-school tracking processes that left Afro-Caribbean young people overrepresented in lower-ranked sets and sustained racialized and ethno-cultural hierarchies among students in, and in scare quotes, normal schools. And again, that was according to Tomlinson in 1981. And this is where we find ourselves at the end of 2022. Whilst the ESN schools are no longer being used as a means to educationally segregate Afro-Caribbean children, there are still methods at play which are continuing to do this. One of the most basic, yet pernicious, is in the use of ability sets. Many times, Afro-Caribbean children will find themselves confined to teaching groups which are not designed to stimulate them, entered for exams that will not give them high enough grades to follow an academic path, thus limiting the number of Afro-Caribbean teachers. When we look at things like statistics and outcomes, it is important to remember that there are stories behind all of these numbers and reasons for the experiences of specific demographics in the population. Whilst there are government-endorsed programs to improve the outcomes of Afro-Caribbean children, it's traditionally been a case of lip service. Publicly, promises of improved outcomes and reform have been popular. Yet as the attainment gap begins to close, a new policy or practice makes its way into the system, thus snapping shut the narrow window of opportunity. Thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And I will speak to you soon.